what would we look like if we did have equity? What would it look like if we didn't have disparities? And what might that mean for everybody? I think you as I, as well as I know, that when we improve disparities for people, particularly no matter what group they are, whether they're poor Appalachian whites or blacks in urban or rural areas, you actually improve the care for everybody. That was Selwyn Vickers, president and CEO of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. In this interview, Vickers speaks with VCU Massey Cancer Center director Robert Wynn about his decision to go into medicine, how to tackle health disparities, and his plans for expanding access to MSK. Wynn is guest editor of the Cancer Letter and the Cancer History Project during Black History Month. A full transcript of the interview appears on the Cancer History Project website. Thank you, Dr. Vickers, for joining us uh, during this period. Uh, I couldn't think of anyone else better uh, to be able to highlight um, during not only this month, but just highlight in general of folks who've made an impact on the field of cancer, particularly folks who've made an impact on young people. Um, I was thinking back uh, as a surgical oncologist uh, and thinking about not only your role now, but the roles that you have had over your history. Um, and given the fact that this is Black History Month, I wanted to open up with a question. And that is, what has the impact of folks like Jack White or uh, LaSala Fall or, you know, Harold B. Freeman, what has those folks' impact had on you in the way your, uh, your career has either gone or the way in which you're thinking about how you want to make an impact in the field of cancer? Yeah, thank you so much, Robert, for that question. Um, I would say like many things, um, in America as it relates to Black history, um, most of our lives have been a part of actually achieving our dreams, but overcoming society perceptions and limitations that have often been placed on us by incomplete narratives. Because of that, the value of actually seeing someone who's gone before you and touching someone who's done what you wanted to do is unbelievably powerful in both energizing and giving you the possibility of hope that you can do something similar. Jack White being the first black surgeon to train at Memorial um, gives all of us a chance to understand that what is possible once the door is open. And LaSalle Fall who also had that experience to train here, um, even further highlighted the excellence of both achievement and character uh, that could overcome perceptions and bias. And, and LaSalle, um, in so many ways, gave me a chance to touch a man who remarkably uh, dignified in the capacity that he had as a leader that one respect of the, the world of surgeons as the world of cancer leaders for both his grace, his intellect, and his challenge to the world, as in the case of Jack White, to understand the disparities in cancer outcomes and care for people of color. So they highlight excellence comes in all shades. They highlight resilience and grit of a level of achievement that often required them to sacrifice much. And they also remind me 
that if what they did was possible in their time, there is much that I can do in mine. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. You, it, it also reminds me that in addition to those giants, that you may even have personal giants within your own family. I was actually w wondering if you wouldn't mind talking about your maternal grandmother and the, and the impact and the influence that she's had on you in Alabama. Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand it until over time, but a woman who I got to know as a young kid, largely because she was a school teacher different than other moms in rural Alabama. She was getting up dressed uh, in her best outfit to go to school to teach. And I followed her at the age of five because I needed something to do. And as I grew my own educational pathway in college, I would drive a hundred miles back to see my grandmother because of the relationship I had with her uh, and the same thing for my grandfather. I it was I, I didn't think about it much then, but, but they had such an impact on me. I'd come home to college. They lived about 100 miles away. I'd get in the car and I would drive by myself just to go spend time with them and with her in particularly, because what I saw in her was a, a woman who overcame all odds who in the seventh grade was told she needed no more education, but had a passion to be a college graduate who had to then go her own journey to a little place called Snow Hill Academy. And as I share with that organization, that, that looked nothing like Andover or Choke. It was a rural Black school where it was the only place where you could get a high school degree for Blacks in the South in that part of her state. But, but, but then taking that to commit her life to teaching, raising a family, and then going 10 summers to get her college degree and telling me that even with that, her aspirations had circumstances been different. She says, I would have gotten my PhD, but I had daughters and a husband and there was a limit on what I could do. But my aspirations go further than that. And, and, and so she, she had a tremendous impact on me to believe education was the great equalizer that it was the thing that independent of her color, it defined her ability to speak cogently and boldly to anybody, no matter who they were, because of what she had learned and the dignity of which she carried herself in her role. Oh, thank you for that. You know, I, it leads me to thinking about our, our young people today and, and how they make choices and, and how do you figure things out. And the question has always been for me, there were so many pathways for you to go down in medicine. You could have been an oncologist, you could have been a radiation, why surgery? And why your focus on, uh, on and particularly in pancreatic and these things like that? Yeah, you know, a lot of that for an individual, I, I had the fortune to have a uncle who was a physician and that was very rare. Um, he was the first physician to graduate from his little small college of Stillman in Alabama. So I was very blessed to have someone I could touch and gain the passion, but also realize that because of DNA, I had the intellect to do what seemed to be impossible to me, that I could be a doctor because I knew him and he could tell me, you're smart enough to do this. Didn't that was a bit out of my reach for my mindset. I knew I could be a teacher because I'd seen that. 
Um, and But I didn't know that I really could be a doctor because of the journey of getting there. He helped me understand that I was all possible. The surgery thing was one of those things that I actually tried to avoid. Um, I At the time that I did my rotations, one of my goals, Robert, was to leave that rotation with those faculty members asking me, had you thought about being a pediatrician? Had you thought about being a psychiatrist? So I wanted to be agnostic when I started a rotation and delve in to the degree that I could eventually see myself doing that rotation. Surgery was one that was very hard for me to do in some ways and very easy in others. It was easy because it was always outcomes driven and there was always a goal of getting someone out or getting in the OR and fixing something. That was easy. What was hard was that I didn't see the relationships that I wanted to build with patients often in surgery because it was episodic. And not until I had finished my surgery rotation, uh, I had an older black man who had peripheral vascular disease, had gotten a fairly complex bypass procedure to save his foot, but he had a necrotic large toe, big toe. And my job as the as the intern or sub eye on the service was at 4.30, I would go by, wake him up, allow him to get a chance to get a cigarette in his mouth because I was going to debreed his foot. No lidocaine, no numbing. It was dead tissue I was taking off. And he would, you know, wince in pain as I cleaned it up and got dead tissue removed so that when my attending would come by at 5 30 uh, I would have had that done and I did that for probably four or five weeks until he got discharged and I was off the service doing medicine and I got this call from one of the surgery attendings and said you need to come to surgery clinic and I like I'm not on surgery anymore and the nurse came and on the phone and said there's a patient here who won't leave until he sees you so I go down to that surgery clinic and there's this old man sitting there and says, I wanted to see my doctor. And that was me. He wouldn't go until I came to see him because his foot was healed. And the pain I put him through, he knew I didn't intend, but he knew I did it for his good. And after I did that, I that that gave me the sense that I could do surgery and still build the relationships with my patients that I wanted to have and have a career and a passion of an area that I that fit me as a person. Wow, it, you talk about inspiration. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, so, so following up on that, it's clear that you've always wanted to have connections with people in our communities. Yeah. And equity has always been uh, also a part of what we do. All the way back from Minnesota, I remember this, and doing things for the Center for Healthy African-American Men through partnership yeah. And, yeah. and impact. Could you talk a little bit more about also, you know, the importance of that, because I'm going to get to really the main question that this is going to lead to, which is the equity issue. And also knowing that science is evolving, how can we actually get our communities to have more access to our clinical trials and all the rest of these other things? So I'll start with what was your passion driving around the equity issue? Because not everyone actually has that passion. So what drove you? Yeah, I, I think what drove me was, again, the legacy of the challenge 
that this country still been dealing with since 1865, um, when there was an abolition of 3 million black slaves, we're still struggling of how to integrate them in our society. Yes. Um, we had an opportunity and then we created a sort of a surrogate, if you would, slave system and caste system that continually created the second class citizenship for people of color. And that's been pervasive in several things that we deal with across the landscape of economics, education, and, and certainly not the least of them, healthcare. I saw that strikingly in the South because of poverty and access. And as you know, disparities didn't occur really until issues of opportunities were presented. Uh, you know, uh, the classic example before mammography existed, Black women died at the same rate as white women because there was no way to detect it early and there were no treatments for anybody. But you now advance both therapies and early detection, then the haves get access and the have-nots remain, unfortunately, in the status they were before. And so you see the gap grow. And that's whether you're in Alabama, Minnesota, or New York, those principles still exist. The secondary principle that I think we often don't speak enough about is where would we, what would we look like if we did have equity? What would it look like if we didn't have disparities? And what might that mean for everybody? I think you as I, as well as I know, that when we improve disparities for people, particularly no matter what group they are, whether they're poor Appalachian whites or blacks in urban or rural areas, you actually improve the care for everybody. When you resolve those issues related to access, targeted therapy, inclusion, you make the system better than everybody. Because we, we frame this as a zero-sum game, if somebody wins and somebody loses, we often struggle to take this on at the core of who we are. Because the reality is, if we actually can achieve it, we make it better for everybody, and it improves the care for our country, not just for one segment. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So, so quick question. From where you began um, in your career as a medical student to where we are now, what's, what's the opportunity or what's the progress that's been made during that period of time? You know, I, I think the, the progress has been made in large part in multiple areas. I, I had a chance to be a part of the lens of the NIH's formation of the National Institute of Minority and Health Disparities. One of my close friends and mentors was John Ruffin. Oh my God. And, yeah. and, and I, in the early days, was with John when he left North Carolina to go to Bethesda to form an office that Lou Sullivan thought was important and saw him fight the battles of having the science of health disparities become fully integrated and distinct as a problem to be solved and, and questions to be answered to a field that people have now had a chance to both impact our country and build careers. And, and looking back where I began, this was not even perceived as something to be addressed. We knew it was a problem, but we didn't have any mechanism to actually frame it as a true discipline where there could be both discovery and implementation. And, and that has evolved now where, where we understand both broadly 
many young people coming up want to see this scientific track to be a part of who they are. Secondly, that we understand that it's a pervasive problem throughout our healthcare world that needs to be addressed by all of us and arguably the most challenging burden of academic medicine or even community medicine that exists. Thirdly, we still have the barrier, Robert, in that the areas that we want to address under the rubric of healthcare disparities, the etiologies often extend beyond the reach of academic medical centers. Yes. Right? It's 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 the conundrum when you get an RO1 to look at breast cancer or pancreas cancer at a gene mutation, a new canonical pathway, non-canonical pathway, everything in that grant and in the sphere of what you're doing can answer your questions and often give you solutions. But when you get a health disparities grant, 70, 80% of the things that you need to resolve are not within the scope of what you control. Yes. And so you, you're often in a process of making progress by cobbling together various partnerships to actually address the fundamental problems that end up showing up as a healthcare problem of disparity, but they exist by so many, they're driven by so many other social determinants. Yes. And so that's still the, the holy grail is, is that how do you get all of those mechanisms to the table to actually address those determinants that end up showing up as a healthcare problem over time because of the multiple social determinants that lend itself to affect how we live. Absolutely, absolutely. You know what, thank you for um, bringing that in and thank you for framing it that way because I think most people don't always sort of see the complexity and but also the possibility and the opportunities within our addressing health disparities as not some sort of side science, but as a science. You know, I've, I've been saying that when you really think about health disparities research, it really is person-based, community-based, real precision medicine That's uh, right. at, at its core. So with the few minutes that I have left, I want to talk about your new position. <laughs> I mean, you've done, I mean, amazing things when you were at Michigan, I mean, at Minnesota, you did amazing things or at UAB. What, this opportunity, what excites you? And, and what are the opportunities that you sort of see of not only moving Memorial Sloan, but really having an impact in our field. Yeah, I I, I think, you know, um, it's a unique opportunity. It was a hard decision. I've, you know, I've had two really difficult emotional decisions uh, when I've left home. Um, and um, arguably I should say three, when I first left to go to Baltimore to Hopkins and I stayed there 16 years, Baltimore had become home. And I accepted a job for about a week to stay as a faculty member and then decided to leave. And that was an emotional uh, and really challenging experience for at least the first two years going back to Alabama. And that part of Alabama was, was only something I'd visited. I hadn't lived in Birmingham. And so it was new and had no ties to UAB at all. And I, I was fortunate. I was blessed to have a, a great experience um, to hopefully have an impact in the organization um, and went to Minnesota, um, had a really good run of running a surgery department and 
value, creating hopefully value for that institution during my time. And then, and deciding that probably I'd head back sort of south, but didn't know where that would end up. And it happened to be back at UAB, which arguably most, including myself, thought maybe that that's probably where my career would would end in, in the roles that I had taken on. Um, didn't see this coming uh, and didn't necessarily expect it or and it wasn't on the radar necessarily. I certainly still had very fond affiliations with Hopkins, but but Memorial was an unexpected opportunity where there seemed to be a match of both my academic background as a cancer surgeon, having led, you know, both complex cancer research programs, pancreatic cancer spores, as well as cancer disparities, uh, but also had functioned as a senior leader um, who had run major organizations um, and complex healthcare systems that in part Memorial could benefit from that leadership. So the match seemed to be one that was appropriate and, and fortunately worked itself out. And as I arrived, I think it was timely. Uh, the leaders prior to me, Paul Marks, Harold Varmus, and Craig Thompson, phenomenal scientists, built a, a, an incredible institution that has impeccable, if you would, cancer biology research and great clinical care. I think one of the blessings and curses of New York, uh, one of the blessings is that you're in a really a resource-rich environment. Tremendous resources that have been generously given by our benefactors to Memorial uh, to really create a treasure trove of both discovery, uh, translation, and clinical trials and clinical care. One of the blessings, one of the curses is that you can get isolated just doing stuff in New York, right? You got, you know, you can go 50 miles in a circle and you got 35 million people and you can get locked into that being the world. And so I, I've said, you know, my, my broad vision for Memorial is to continually grasp at being the world's authority on cancer and equally continually run after being the cancer center to the world. And I clarify that being both geographically and culturally. Yes. I, I, I've said to my, my constituents, I can go to Harlem and my barber's never heard of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I can go to Coney Island and there are people there who've never heard of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Now I can't drop a dime without somebody knowing in, an east, in the Upper East Side of New York. But the reality, there are worlds just in the spectrum of what we call New York that don't know us because we've been often seen as exclusive and selective. And so I want to broaden that aperture for the organization uh, because being stewards of the resources that this organization has been blessed to have, there's a responsibility to have others have access to it. And so I think that's the grand opportunity through partnerships, collaborations, can't do it all on our own. We need those partners to help us do it. And we need the ability to have a vision that cast our scope broader than just this area where we are, even though there's a large population. Wow, you know, I, um, I'm super excited for you. I'm really excited for Memorial Sloan and, uh, and the people that you'll sort of impact. 
I know we we're coming up on uh, at the at the uh, at the uh, at our time, but I just want to give you one opportunity if you have any advice or what's the one piece of advice you would give our young people uh, in a context of as they are looking forward to their careers and trying to make impact. Is there any advice you give to our young people? Yeah, I I've often shared the story of my my paternal and maternal ancestors, um, and I I. I written about it in the context of burnout and resilience. And my story is not unique. Every person, particularly in this country who's achieved, stands on the shoulders, and particularly of color, stands on the shoulders of individuals who've sacrificed in some significant way. And I would challenge all of them as you face hurdles and challenges, the mindfulness to understand that your loved ones could never spell the word burnout. That, that it wasn't in their vocabulary. They had no ability to even think about it. And, and in many ways, as our ancestor says, that when we face that next challenge, I could be no ways tired. And so I, I would encourage all of the people who are fostering and making their moves for their careers, uh, be, continually be resilient, uh, which really in the mathematical terms means the ability to take on an obstacle or, or a impediment without having it leave a permanent defect. Only makes you stronger to move forward. That's awesome. This is the end um, of our interview, Dr. Rickers. And I just want to thank you so much for your time uh, and for being with us and uh, wish you well. And, uh, and, and again, I'm really super excited for everything you're going to do. Thank you for listening to the Cancer History Project podcast, a podcast of oral histories and interviews with the people who have shaped oncology as we know it. Our archives are available online for free at cancerhistoryproject.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at cancerhistproj. The Cancer History Project is a collaborative historical resource operated by The Cancer Letter. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Cedars-Sinai, Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and many others. View a full list of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.